So last time I was here, I uh, gave a talk on faith as part of a series of talks on uh, a list of teachings that the Buddha gave called the Five Spiritual Faculties. So the second uh, talk I want to give in that series is on the say balancing factor to faith, which is wisdom. So I'm going to talk about wisdom tonight. You can decide whether I have anything wise to say about the subject. <laughs> so it's interesting, I've been mulling this um, theme over for the last couple of weeks. And for a lot of that couple of weeks, I couldn't think of anything to say about wisdom. <laughs> and I struggle with the word wisdom. It just it felt so old and stuffy, like it belongs in some old dusty religious text on some bookshelf somewhere. I thought, well, that's not very good for giving a talk. <laughs> so, um, so I began to play around with the word wisdom and wise and unwise. And I thought, and then I, then, and I began to think of wisdom as a verb, as an active process, how we live wisely, how we act wisely, how we speak wisely, how we move wisely in the world, then I began to think, oh yeah, that I can relate to that. It felt more dynamic and more real and, and more accessible in my experience. And then as I re began to reflect about it more, I began to realize that everything that we do here uh, in terms of Buddhist teaching and practice is about wisdom in some form or other. That all paths, in a way, all the practices of meditation and ethics and the heart practices, loving-kindness, compassion, study, renunciation, that all the practices are really cultivating wisdom, and not not a, not a, not. And when I say wisdom, I don't mean an intellectual knowledge, but a, a lived, visceral understanding that we gain, we glean from from learning, from our experience, from looking at ourselves, from looking at how we live our lives and the choices we make, and um, to see what brings about well-being and contentment and ease and letting go and happiness and one of the things that lead to us continuing to feel miserable or dissatisfied or depressed. So then I realized I had too much to talk about because <laughs> I have to talk about everything. <laughs> So this talk will be 19 hours and 30 minutes. <laughs> so you've had the day off, so I figured you'd have, you know, some energy and attention. So, so and it sort of seems fitting in a way to be talking about wisdom on Memorial Day, given, as I mentioned earlier, that I think so much of what's happening in the world in the biggest sphere uh, so much violence and cruelty and oppression and racism <coughs> and warfare is coming out of a lack of wisdom. Yeah. The leaders, the 
of nation-states acting out of greed, ambition, fear, not out of wisdom. If nation-states acted with wisdom, we wouldn't be at war. We wouldn't be conquering each other's countries and ransacking resources and all of that. As Huxley writes, ours is a world where knowledge grows and wisdom wanes. So there are many kinds of wisdom, and I'm going to speak to a few of them and speak to how practice uh, cultivates and supports wise living. The writer Henry David Thoreau wrote, I've always regretted that I was not as wise as the day I was born. So those of you who spend time around kids, you know that it seems like we come into this world quite wise in some ways. And it seems that we lose some of that natural clarity or seeing. So this is something I like to read. I don't think, I I wasn't sure whether I read this here not so long ago, but it doesn't hurt to to hear it again. So this is from a first grade class. The teacher asked her students to complete some proverbs. So, um, and here's the wisdom. Better to be safe than punch a fifth grader. (laughs) Strike while the bug is close. Don't bite the hand that looks dirty. (laughs) You can't teach an old dog new math. (laughs) Love all, trust me. (laughs) A penny saved is not much. (laughs) Two's company, three's the musketeers. Don't put off till tomorrow what you put on to go to bed. Here's a good one for the therapists in the room. Children should be seen and not spanked or grounded. If at first you don't succeed, get new batteries. And you get out of something what you see pictured on the box. There's a lot of wisdom. This is a great wise one. When the blind leadeth the blind, get out the way. So one kind of wisdom, kind of fresh. So I remember I grew up in northern England um, in a uh, (laughs) being attacked by triffids here. Um, And uh, the the most the main wisdom that I knew about growing up was street being streetwise, that they need a certain kind of wisdom to navigate just being a teenager and, in my case, being Catholic, avoiding being beaten up in a Protestant neighborhood, Um, and um, just dealing with, uh, in in my case, kind of a rough working class culture. And uh, there's a certain kind of wisdom that we glean just from from surviving and growing up, and uh, a valuable kind of wisdom. There's a psychological wisdom, 
psychological insights that happen, both just in living, therapy, through our practice. There's the wisdom of aging, hopefully, (laughs) slowly, sometimes. And of course, if it, you know, if, if, if that's all that needed to happen, then there'll be a lot of enlightened 80-year-olds around, which I'm not sure there are, but... And as they say, age is a very high price to pay for maturity. <laughs> and there's the wisdom of the body, which I think is a really beautiful, rich asset that uh, I've certainly come to really appreciate as I've learned to meditate and learn to really you know, Vipassana practice, this practice of mindfulness is really an in-the-body practice. And so as we deepen that sensitivity to the body, we, there's a lot of wisdom that's inherent. You know, the, the, just the learning to listen to ourselves, listen to the, the gut, listen to the intuition resides in the body, not in the thinking mind. The wisdom of the heart, the wisdom of the know, you know, quite often, our body is telling us loud and clear about something. Yeah, a lot of the times, no. <laughs> Don't drink that. <laughs> Don't have thirds of chocolate cake. Don't go out till five in the morning. Get go to work at seven. You know. Don't take on too many projects. Don't you know? And often the mind overrides the wisdom of the body, and what happens? We suffer. We get sick or something. So, or you may have an illness or a physical limitation. The body teaches us about limits, how to respect limits, how to live within limits, which is a, something that we learn from nature. Everything has limits in this natural world. The mind likes to, no, there's no limits. Don't confine me. But there's, there's great wisdom to learn in the limitation of having a body So, in terms of the, the wisdom teachings of, of, of Buddhism and what the Buddha taught, it's a very specific kind of wisdom, specific kind of understanding. And what's interesting, there's a, there's a teaching that the Buddha gave, uh, it was really a story. Uh, he's, he's hanging out with his monks, nuns, and they're mostly in the forest. And he picks up a bunch of leaves and he says, what do you think's greater, the, the amount of leaves in my hand or the amount of leaves in the forest? And the monks and nuns like, duh, the amount of leaves in the forest. And he says, yes. Likewise, the amount of teachings and, and knowledge and wisdom that I have that I share with you is equal to the leaves in my hand, but the knowledge and wisdom that I know is equal to leaves in the forest. He says, but you only need a few simple uh, teachings and instructions to awaken. You don't need to know every leaf in the forest. So I always find this teaching interesting, that he's saying you know, that what we need to understand ourselves, what we need to uh, be free from our distress uh, is not. We don't have to go and read the Encyclopedia Britannica and 
the whole books of texts from every Buddhist tradition which would probably fill this room. Uh, we need to know some very simple fundamental uh, teachings and practices, which is good news. I mean, you could read all the books in the bookstore, and the bookstore manager would be very happy if you bought them all. But actually, or mostly they say the same thing. If, if you've cottoned on by now, there's lots of different writers, but we basically say the same thing. Pay attention, let go, be kind. But mostly what the Buddha was teaching in terms of developing wisdom is to understand the causes of suffering, why it is that we're in distress, why it is we're not sitting here on a Monday night just supremely at peace. Anybody here sitting supremely at peace with no, no care, no fear, no anxiety, no distress, no misery? You? <laughs> a little bit? Okay, good. You can give the teaching up here. <laughs> um, so to understand what it is that causes us stress, what, what it is that we do in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies, in our relationships, and the way we move in the world that creates disharmony, that creates dis-ease, that creates anxiety. And what is it that brings peace, what supports well-being, what supports happiness, joy, peace, freedom. So very simple, not so easy, but very simple to pay attention, to look at the causes and conditions of our lives. To learn how to live in this world with an open heart, with a loving heart. Also not so not simple, but not so easy. To understand oneself, understand the nature of who we are. We spend a lot of time thinking about who we are and trying to uh, we spend a lot of time self-obsessed, but not very self-aware. It's interesting that we, you know, if you think about what happens in meditation, what are you doing? You're thinking, right? Thinking wins hands down over being aware of the breath. Right? <coughs> thinking about our plans and our projects and our arguments and our fantasies, and, right? That's mostly what we pay attention to. It's mindfulness of our thinking. Except not so mindful of our thinking, lost in thinking. As opposed to learning about the nature of who we are. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be awake? What does it mean to be conscious? Who are you? You know, that's the perennial spiritual question. Who are we? I have no idea, actually. But the invitation is to look, to not look to books or to the, to the mind, to, to, but to look for your direct experience. So as um, many of you know, the, the Buddha gave uh, this teaching to the Kalamas, um, who were a group of um, folks in northern India. Um, who were confused by all the spiritual teachings that were going around, and they wanted to know how do we make sense of who's saying the truth, what's useful, what's... They all seem to contradict each other, and everyone says they're right. You notice that? Spiritual traditions, everyone says they're right, the right way. <coughs> Last week was the Day of Judgment. Oops, no it's not. 
Okay, we survived. Thank you. I listened to the interview of, of that priest or vicar or whatever he is uh, the day after, May 22nd. Very interesting. Quite humbling. <laughs> oh, we're still here. Guess we're not part of the chosen ones. So, um, so the Buddha said, well, how do you make sense of this? He said, you should decide kalamas not by what you've heard, not by convention, not by assuming it's so, not by relying on texts, not because of reasoning or logic or by thinking or by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely and certainly not out of respect for the teachers. How you should know whether a certain teaching or practice is suitable and relevant for yourselves is that they lead to, uh, when undertaken, incline the, the mind and the heart towards welfare and happiness, to well-being, and incline you away from harm and suffering. So very pragmatic. Buddhism is very pragmatic. What works? What, what brings well-being and happiness? And so it's not very difficult to bring awareness to our lives. And so what, what is it that's supporting my life, that's, that's allowing my heart to open, that's not stabbing me in the head, that's, um, excuse me, I want to do a little flower arranging here. Sabotage. So what leads to well-being? So one of the things we talk a lot about is, the, is letting go. It's having a, an attitude in life that doesn't hold on, that doesn't grip, that doesn't grasp, that doesn't uh, support the ego building itself up. It's more, it's, it's, it's enlightening, it's an unburdening practice. As Achan Sumedho writes very well when he says, simplify your meditation practice down to two words, let go. Rather than develop this practice and develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Majjhimika and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana, write books about becoming a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, which I have to go to next week, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to figure something out, I just say, let go. Mm. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in tremendous amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences, <laughs> which is true. Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world, but instead I just suggest being an earthworm let go of the desire and just simply be. No two words. Let go, let go, let go. So, what's essential in the cultivation of wisdom or living wisely is to, is to understand that that process happens through our experience. So, wisdom in Buddhism is, is, is not knowledge, not book knowledge, not learnt knowledge but coming to understanding through our experience, through looking, through observing, through being with, through practice, through
through seeing for ourselves what's true, what works, what's real, what causes suffering, what brings happiness. And the first step of that is to um, is really a practice of unlearning. Our minds and our heads are usually quite full of thinking that we already know. Right? I don't know what's what. I need someone to tell me how to live and how to be happy. To be conscious of one's own ignorance is the beginning of wisdom. Or as somebody said, I don't know who this is who by people who people would have arrived at wisdom had they not believed themselves to have arrived there already. I think that's a really great phrase. We would have arrived at wisdom had we not believed that we're already there. So there's a certain kind of emptying out or letting go or um, suspending thinking we know and actually taking a look, being curious, being open, or not relying on the fact that we know something intellectually, like, yeah, I know things change, I know everything comes and goes. Especially the warm weather in the Bay Area, you know, comes and goes. <laughs> but we don't really live with that lived sense of change because we keep holding on. You know, we keep getting upset when something changes. You know, or a brand new shirt gets a stain on it. Oh no! You know, or our favorite shirt starts wearing thin, as, as this one is one of my favorite tops. And each time it happens, I go. It's where it's freeing. <laughs> it can't be. It's can't be possible. <laughs> it's my favorite shirt. <laughs> always, I was always surprised. I look at them <gasps> as if it was as if I believed it was going to last forever. So it's like we there's just different layers that we have to keep getting it again and again and again. Oh yeah, this too. This too will change. And we get surprised when we look in the mirror and there's another wrinkle. You know, more gray hair. You know, like. We think it was going to go darker. <laughs> so, so we have to we have to suspend, or at least see how how we 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 reduce our openness by thinking that we know. And there's a lot of pressure in this culture at work and society to think we know, right? You get a job, you're supposed to know something. You're hired to do a certain task. This is Adi Lang on not knowing. There is something I don't know that I am supposed to know. I don't know what it is, what I don't know, yet I'm supposed to know. And I feel I look stupid if I seem to both not know it and not know what it is I don't know. <laughs> Therefore, I pretend to know it. This is nerve-wracking since I don't know what I must pretend to know. Therefore, I pretend to know everything. I feel you know what I'm supposed to know, but you can't tell me what it is because you don't know that I don't know what it is. And you may know what I don't know, but not that I can't, but not that I don't know it. And I can't tell you, so you will have to tell me everything. Sound familiar? I think I should know something. I'm not quite sure what it is, but I'm going to pretend that I know what it is. It's kind of painful. And it's very freeing when we, when, we, when we can acknowledge that we don't know. 
very liberating when someone asks this really deep, wise Dharma question, and I say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's nice when I know the answer. But when I don't, it feels equally comfortable to say, I don't know. It's not in my experience yet. Take, take a look for yourself. So in this practice, this, 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 the, the wisdom arises out of investigation, out of curiosity, out of inquiring, out of being curious about our experience, about the mind, about the body, about the heart, about awareness. Yeah, so the, the, the moment by moment, just as you're sitting right now, to be curious what's happening as you're sitting. Maybe you're bored, maybe you're excited, maybe you're curious, maybe you're disagreeing, maybe you're liking, not liking. Uh, maybe your mind's running stories. To be curious, what's happening? Where are you? How are you relating to what's here? There's a lovely story in the text of um, uh, a monk who uh, was not uh, born with uh, much intelligence and had a very gifted brother who was very brilliant and excelled as a monk and a teacher and uh, constantly teased his brother for not being so smart. And uh, the, his, the smarter brother gave his uh, brother um, a four-line stanza for him to memorize uh, so he could practice because he found it too difficult to meditate. But each time he tried to learn one of the stanzas, he would forget the preceding one. So he'd get to stanza three, forget number two, and. So eventually he gave up, became really despondent, and was going to leave the order because he felt so hopeless. And the Buddha came to know about it and, and came to see this man. And uh, the Buddha had a very uncanny knack of um, knowing just what was the right teaching that would help someone awaken, no matter what their level of intelligence or what their age was or experience. So he gave this man a uh, task, which was to, to get a handkerchief and to rub it into his palm in the hot sun all day, just to keep rubbing it. And so he did that, simple, easy to do, and just to pay attention to what happened. And what happened was that um, the handkerchief became dirty with sweat from his hand. And as that happened, he began to awaken uh, understanding about the nature of the body, nature of the body to change, to get sick, <coughs> the, the transient nature of the body. And as that practice deepened, uh, a series of awakenings unfolded in him uh, and he attained full realization based on what, what arose. And he also developed um, some psychic powers, as often happens when people wake up. And um, and then later went on to, he, w- he became much more adept and uh, uh, his level of realization became much more prof- profound than his brother's. And because of his powers, he'd go back and play tricks on his smart mm-hmm. brother. <laughs> so, but what I like about that story, aside from the fact that you know, we all resonate with the person who doesn't feel so smart, is, uh, maybe some of us do anyway, is um, that the, the, the practice comes out of direct experience. Very, and just a simple practice of seeing, in this case it was the, the impurity of the body in a certain way, the, tra- the transient nature of the body. 
So that's what we do when we meditate. We look closely. We see what's going on. We shift from ideas about ourselves or reality. We say, what's, what's going on? Why is it that I'm not simply resting at peace? You know, like in the last meditation, what was arising that was not, that was, that was a hindrance to you simply abiding in presence, abiding in peace? Maybe, maybe some of you were just in ecstatic, radiant bliss for 40 minutes. Hands up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so what, what, what's happening that that's not, not that should happen, it doesn't matter what arises, but to be curious, what gets in the way? So another support for wisdom arising is to have, uh, the Buddha said, have association with the wise. To, the Buddha had an understanding of relationship, even though he lived as a monk and lived in a monastic order. Those orders are very um, require a lot of complex relationship. And he understood the power of social contact and the effect we have on each other. So he said, you know, if you hang out with people that are troubled and angry and violent and aggressive and mean, and that that will rub off we'll be influenced by that. If we're around people who are generous, who are kind, who are present, who have dignity and live with compassion, that rubs off on us. He said, if you can't hang out with anybody who's wise, then be alone. Stay with yourself. Be with yourself. So, um, and in the same way, so wise friends, also wise teachers, mentors, people who guide us on the path, you know. I feel tremendous gratitude for all the teachers and mentors and friends, spiritual friends that I've been around, study with, have guidance from, and been affected by them, you know. But mostly been inspired. Because it's not easy to do this, it's not easy to walk this path. It's not all bliss and light, you know. Not the one I've walked anyway. <laughs> we have to face ourselves and face our stuff. So, one of the ways the Buddha expressed the teachings of wisdom was through the Eightfold Path. Most of you are familiar with the Eightfold Path, teachings that really encompass, that, that speak to how the path encompasses all of our lives. Beginning with wise understanding, some of the things I've already been talking about, which leads to wise intention, or wise motivation, how we move in the world, how we, how we express ourselves in the world, motivated out of kindness, out of compassion, out of renunciation, out of letting go. So you could say wisdom moves in the world through kindness. That's the manifestation of wisdom. Think about the wisest person that you know, the wisest person you've been in contact with. My experience, the wisest people I know move in the world with tremendous clarity, but also tremendous compassion and kindness and love. In the Talmud, there's an expression that says, the highest wisdom is kindness. Or as the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. Which means 
the, 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 the sum or the, the expression of all our inner work comes out in the way that we move in the world, hopefully. Not perfectly, not all the time, but there's a general inclination towards heart opening, more kindness, more, more empathy, more compassion. And so as we move in the world, we can see how our wisdom is in relationship to things of the world. So our relationship to money and to reflect how, how, is, how is my, how is this, this notion, this idea of wisdom, how is it in relationship to money? Often a, it's often a very stressful place, and often a place where not we don't act that wisely, because of being driven out of scarcity, out of greed, out of fear, out of envy. How we are with our sexuality. Hands up, who hasn't been wise with their sexuality? Right? <coughs> they can cast the first stone. Yeah, very powerful, charged area. Strong emotional physical drives, and because of those drives, we tend to not act so wisely at times. <coughs> or how our wisdom is in our relationships, our intimate relationships. Also one of the hardest places to practice, to wake up. Or in our work. You know, in this culture, having come from England and Europe, where um, the, the, the work ethic isn't so strong. It's strong, but it's not as strong as here. And I see how imbalanced people live because they work so hard. There's just such a, just in the Bay Area particularly, there's such a strong drive to work, to achieve, to produce, to manifest, um, and overwork. You know, 60, 70, 80 hours is not unheard of, as you know. So how much wisdom is coming through our work life and the work we do and how we work and what we choose to do? And then the wisdom in how we are with our, with our conversation. You know, again, these, every, every one of these things I'm touching on, I'm just touching on, but they're huge areas in which to grow our wisdom or to see the lack of wisdom. Yeah. The Buddha said, speak what's truthful and useful. A very simple, very helpful play of, mm, reflection. You know, it's easy to speak what's truthful, well, not easy, but often, but not necessarily what's useful. I always said, think about when you speak, reflect whether this is the right time, the right place, the right person, the right subject. So it's you know, if it's midnight and you're tired and you're hungry. It's not the place to bring up a really deep problem in your relationship, usually. You know, it doesn't work. You get your head bitten off. Or you just get, you know, it's just very easy to get reactive. Our relationship to stuff, how, you know, look at the stuff that's in our closets and our houses and our garages and our storage units and our <laughs> wherever else we accumulate stuff. You know, what's a wise relationship to stuff? I have a friend who, uh, for a long time, she, she, whenever she would uh, buy something or get something, she would give two things away. 
a great practice. Even giving one thing away would be good. Or <laughs> 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 giving ten things away. <laughs> you know, it's like how is it our, our houses always sort of seem to not be not big enough for our stuff? <coughs> now, what's the you know, I had a student who said her, 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 her grandma collected uh, broken light, bu- saved all these broken light bulbs and the cut off bits of string that no longer served any purpose. Boxes in the basement. You know, so we all have our basement with stuff, right? We all think, you know, and then, and then to the accumulation of stuff, thinking that happiness is in stuff, and we all get caught in that trap. I just came from REI, it's my favorite <laughs> shopping store. And because it's a camping store, and because I teach this wilderness work, it's like, I feel like I get like a, a green card with shopping. It's like it's kosher because it's sort of healthy, it's outdoorsy, and it's, and it's um, green, and it gets me outside. <laughs> and I go open up my, my camping closet in my house, and the stuff pours out. <laughs> Sleeping bags, and tents, and thermorests, and... It's all very necessary, I want you to know. (laughs) Thank you, yes, I will. Thank you for the reminder. (laughs) They don't sell them at REI, though. It's a different store. I have to go to another store, and that's a whole other story. So try this. This is is an advert from uh, the Sunday Times in England. Try this simple form of meditation. So there's a picture of an orange dot, right? Which is, and in Buddhism, it's a a casino meditation where you (coughs) focus on colored discs. Focus on this dot. Stare Stare into it for a few moments. See it as a door, an opening, a vessel into which your mind is flowing. Once inside, your heartbeat begins to slow. You feel peaceful, calm, serene. You'll feel the same as opening the door of an E-Class Mercedes. Yes, this is the new meditation. You need this to meditate. This is the vehicle to Nirvana, apparently. So anyhow, stuff. We all have it, too much of it. The world's groaning at our consumption. So the wisdom in relationship to our emotions, another very rich territory to explore. How are we just as, just as, we, as, as we can look at how we are with our body, the way we relate to our body, the way we treat you know, this expression, um, our body is a temple, but only if we treat it as such. Otherwise it's what? It's a vehicle for getting us from A to B, or it's a nuisance, or it's uh, who knows how we relate to the body, an embarrassment. But it can be a temple if we treat it so, and same with our emotions. What would it be to bring some wisdom to our emotions? Which requires that we get curious, we get close, we get intimate with our emotional life, we feel what our feeling life is in the body. I I work with a lot of students one-on-one, and often there's a, there's a surprising um, uh, lack of facility to know what, what, what the emotional life is. So, you know, and our emotions are such a strong driver, such a strong fuel in us. We want to know what's happening emotionally. 
This is a poem from, I think it's from Wendell Berry. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. While I fear, what I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings and I hear its song. After days of labor, mute in my consternations, I hear my own song at last and I sing it. As we sing, the day turns and the trees move. So I love that poem because it speaks to the, the sort of welcoming open spirit, the invitation. What I fear, I open to, I allow. I invite, I get curious. What's afraid of me, I also invite. I allow, I get curious. I let in and transform and it melts and dissolves. So again, we're often at war with our own emotions, with our own feeling life. How much, how much compartmentalization have we created to keep things down and at bay? And to feel the suffering, to feel the, the, the limitation of that. So this path, this practice can give tremendous facility, to, tremendous courage to not be afraid of whatever emotion wants to come through. And I feel tremendous gratitude for this practice. I've done a lot of deep uh, work, working with some very strong, painful, difficult emotions on retreats, particularly meditation. And over time, developing a certain fearlessness because what we can take refuge in is awareness that can hold any of it and all of it. Fear, longing, despair, depression, terror. Mindfulness has the capacity to hold, to feel, to embrace, to allow. And when we take refuge in that, then it doesn't matter what comes through. It can be joy, it can be horror, it can be beauty, it can be love, it can be despair. And it's okay on a certain level. Grief, loss. So, I want to say a little about the path of practice and just how some things, how we naturally can develop uh, some wisdom as we go along in this path, or how it unfolds. So, in the first place we might notice this is, um, as we develop mindfulness, is um, the shift in our level of uh, awareness, our level of mindfulness. So when we first come to practice, usually our mind's all over the place, if we can even find our mind. You know, we get lost, we're busy, scattered, restless. And over time, we develop some, some facility to be more present, to be steady, to be less pulled off into the cloud of thought and fantasy and reactivity. And as, we, as, that, as that mindfulness quality deepens, there's a little more steadiness, a little less reactivity. So when we first start 
sitting. It's a little like this. There's a cartoon that I like um, where there's a little man sitting in a dark room meditating and then this bright light comes on and then there's a, hmm, what's that? Hmm, looks good. Gotta have it. If I don't have it, I'm gonna die. And then he gets it. Yes, yes. And falls over in bliss. And he's back to the little dark room. Light comes on. Hmm, what's that? And then over it goes, you know, and then we're lost in another cycle of fantasy, lust, longing, something. And over time we can, there's a place of finding some steadiness where we're not so pulled or resisting or reacting those things that come, come and go. Or maybe we uh, have a little room around uh, the inner tyrant. Anybody have a little, you know, a little something inside that's, you know, has a wagging finger? Just not up to scratch. Just not good enough. Just not mindful enough. Just not kind enough. Just not enough, basically. So we live with a sense of scarcity and we fear this voice punishing us for doing something wrong. You missed a breath. Or 5,000. And, you know, just as we can come to have more clarity with, with our thinking in general, and not to be so at the mercy of it, we can, be, we can also have some cloud in space around the judging mind. Oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. If, you, if, we, if we can sit back in awareness, we can just say, oh, it's a bunch of thoughts. Same as yesterday, same as 10 years ago, same as mom and dad used to tell me. Is that movie, you know, with that puppet, the guy with the puppet? Well, you know, it's like having a puppet. (laughs) And we believe it, and we give it authority, and we give it power, and we give it strength, until we see, oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. It's not true, it's not me, it's not mine, it's conditioned. And so we can learn to have some space, some freedom around our crazy thinking minds. This is from Byron Katie. She says, um, the mind gives birth to infinite worlds of this and that, complete from the beginning and inexhaustible in the production of what isn't. When you're in dreamless sleep at night and you wake up and you say, I, when the I arises, welcome to the movie of who you think you are. But if you question it, there's no attachment. It's just a great movie. Get the popcorn, here it comes. I don't have to figure anything out. I gave up 43 years of thinking that went nowhere, and now I exist as a don't-know mind, which is very peaceful. So with practice, with insight, we have the capacity to free ourselves some fully from this being in the grip of thinking, the thinking mind, believing the thinking mind is who we are and it's all real and true. And, and when, it, when we stop feeding it and believing it, it actually starts getting quieter or become like a whimper. 
So other things that, that, that arise out of wisdom, when we, when we start to um, have a more visceral understanding of impermanence, not just an idea, oh yeah, things change, yeah, the weather's changing and the season's changing, but actually we live with it, what it does is it, it makes us, uh, well, it does a lot of things, but one of the things it does is, um, uh, I keep losing my words here, is um, it takes out the, the grip of the fascination with experience. Because whatever the experience is, is, no matter how beautiful and fantastic or ugly and horrible, it's going to change. And the reason we fight and resist so much is because when something happens, like we, start, we wake up in the morning, we feel depressed, or we're sitting in the meditation, we feel anxiety, the mind goes, oh my God, I'm going to be always depressed. I'm going to be depressed forever. We just, it, the mind projects the belief that this experience is going to last for a long time. Like some of you are thinking this talk is going to last forever. <laughs> it's not. You have a few minutes to go and you'll be in nirvana. <laughs> or somewhere else, samsara, probably. Um, but, um, so, you know, so, we, so the times that we get caught chasing those orange dots of Mercedes experience or whatever it is that we're compulsed to, this and the, you know the, the not that not there's not that there's not a beautiful an array of beautiful experiences to, to be had in this world, but when we when we chase them with this grip, it's miserable, and we believe you know that we're not going to be happy till we get this thing, and then we believe when we get this thing, this person, this relationship, oh, it's going to be great forever. You know, we, we, we rationally we don't believe that, but you know the this this young longing in us believes it. So what happens is there's a lot more equanimity, a lot more ease when stuff arises that's painful, it's difficult. We know oh, this is going to pass. I don't need to be so reactive. There's a little more equanimity, a little more peace. Or we see that the, the, the changing, what the, what the Buddha called the worldly winds that blow through the house. Pleasure, pain, gain, loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, these things that we grab onto. Oh, fame, oh, a moment of glory on reality TV, or whatever. I got an article published in the journal, and it's, you know, it's great, it's beautiful, but it passes, like everything else, into the dust of history. So I get to experience this when I give a talk, you know, I mean, you give a talk or a presentation or any public thing, and you know, some people love it, some people hate it, some people didn't even listen to it, and there's uh, there's room for all of it. There's not so so much latching on because it's all it's we know it's just changing, ephemeral. So the best example of this is. Um, when the Buddha was sitting under the, the, the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya in India 2,500 years ago, and um, he resolves to take his seat and not to get up until he's fully enlightened, which is quite a, you know, an undertaking, quite a vow. If we were to do that, we might be sitting under that tree for a long time. 
a long time. But anyhow, he took the vow. I will not get up until I've achieved full realization. And then that night, he was plagued, as we can be plagued in meditation, with uh, uh, anxieties, fears, greed, desire, lust, uh, doubt, <clears throat> the, last, the last sort of abuse of the mind was to, was, to, was, to, was to doubt, for him to doubt himself, doubt his realization, doubt his practice. And the, the, the thought came, who do you think you are to sit on this throne of enlightenment? Who do you think you are? Who, you know, what have you done to deserve this? Ever had that thought? Who do you think you are? Who are you, who do you, to meditate, to be awake. But what happened is he sat in the middle of it, just as we do in our practice with mindfulness and awareness. And, we, and he sat, took refuge in that still point, that center of presence that's unmoved by this changing storm of life. That was his refuge. That was the doorway to awakening, to liberation. And so we have that opportunity every time we sit, every time we sit in the middle of whatever it is and we take refuge in awareness and we see the passing show. We all have that possibility. That's the the wisdom that can be gleaned from this practice. So I'll leave you with some questions to reflect on. I'm just going to do some exercises, but we're running out of time. Um, so the three questions I want you to reflect on, in what ways have you seen in your wisdom grow? In what small or large ways have you seen through your life, through your practice, through the work that you've done and your work or your meditation or your service work or you know, all the different ways that we can grow? In what ways have you seen wisdom unfold? And the second question, in what areas of your life are you still living unwisely? In what areas or what actions, what habits, tendencies are you still doing that don't, basically, when I say unwise, I mean don't serve you or don't serve your well-being and happiness. Don't serve you living with fulfillment and peace in the world. And lastly, where is it that you cultivate wisdom? What supports that for you? And I give many examples of what supports us. So I wish um, for all of us that you know we take these teachings to heart, that we cultivate whatever needs to be cultivated to allow the heart to awaken. Because we all have that possibility. It's all within our range. But it does require that we pay attention. We practice. We make effort. So thank you for your attention on this memorable Memorial Day night. (laughs) Um, A couple of announcements. Um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.